Do you want healthier relationships? More intimate sex? Sometimes we have to get closer to ourselves to get close to others. Let's talk on Intimate Interactions. Go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon to unlock every second episode of this podcast as well as tons of premium content. My focus in relationship interviews is helping flesh out the experiences that inform where a person is today, who they are, and what relationship values they hold. Sometimes that involves telling a person's story of where they came from. In this podcast, my guest excels at ruthless honesty, being self-critical of her struggles, learning experiences, and failings along the way. She certainly doesn't make herself out to be anyone special, yet I find her vulnerable, public transparency boldly authentic. Shame is, in my opinion, one of the biggest intimacy killers. Even experts fail. Even those who now espouse a great set of values may have taken a winding path to get there. Until we stop glorifying the end result without the arduous fight for my life struggle, we'll likely keep shaming ourselves for not succeeding right away. When people mention toxic masculinity, they often mean some toxic elements of masculinity, not saying that masculinity is necessarily toxic. Similarly, when people suggest that there's toxic monogamy, they mean tropes that are toxic in monogamy, not that all monogamy is toxic. Think Amanda Marshall's song, If I Didn't Have You, or perhaps that line from Hotel Transylvania, For a zing only happens once in your life. Sometimes toxic monogamy myths spill over into one's practice of non-monogamy, and like so many monogamous relationships, those relationships fail or hold abusive elements. Regularly I face stigma that non-monogamous relationships are unethical, don't work, are coercive, are male fantasy, etc. None of which have been true for me. All of those things are probably true of some relationships, both monogamous and not. There's a tendency to want to showcase, as a result, only the good elements of non-monogamy because many monogamous people don't believe non-monogamy is healthy, natural, obtainable, or even possible. Yet here I sit in two different happy relationships. I can only speak from my experience, but over six years I've been in five non-monogamous relationships, averaging probably two to three years each. My current relationships both have the capacity to feel loving, intense, intimate, sexually charged, considerate, and kind. At the end of the day, I feel so grateful to be where I am. In fact, just last week my partners met each other, these two, um, for coffee, in what I hope marks the beginning of a very happy metamorship. A metamorship is a relationship between partners of partners. For me, metamorship is often life-affirming and characterized initially by challenge, but now more and more by compersion. Compersion is experiencing joy when seeing joy in others. It's like when you see two people kissing in the rain outside and they're strangers, and you just smile. That's compersion. I mention this not to gloat, but to stress that non-monogamy can and does work just like monogamy canon does. Even if the strongest ones in both cases probably fail half the time, here I'm thinking of marriage. I'm also unfortunately using the notion of termination of a relationship as failure, even though I disagree with that standard. As a relationship anarchist, many polyamorous practices are not for me, yet my purpose in this amazing, intimate, and often intense session with Sarah Blaze is to help her share her authentic truth and the journey that's led her to where she is today. Authenticity leads to intimacy, and of course, intimacy is the focus on intimate interactions. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. My guest today is Sarah Blaze, the current CEO of Metro Vancouver Kink, an event producer including the West Coast Bound Convention, at which I'm teaching in 2019, and a pro-dom who throws occasional private sex parties, a parent, an educator, and a writer. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to be focusing on alternative relationships, including different kinds of non-monogamy, polyamory, swinging, lifestyle, relationship anarchy, that kind of stuff. 
what kind of alternative relationship philosophies are you currently practicing in your life? I'd probably call it relationship anarchy. I kind of have two parallel relationships uh, that don't intersect, and polyamory just introduces things that I'm not always comfortable with, like hierarchies and stuff like that, and I'm I'm uncomfortable with with the concept of hierarchies, which is why I tend to lean towards relationship anarchy. It's definitely a risk. I've definitely noticed, um, because there is a hierarchical form of polyamory, that when you start discussing a relationship as being polyamorous, sometimes the underlying assumption is, oh, is there going to be a hierarchy? Yeah, and it, it's it's difficult, too, with partners who think they have rights based on time served. Yeah, seniority. It, it, yeah, and I, I disagree with that. And I think when you start a relationship, you don't always know where it's going to go or where it's going to lead. Totally. And, and I want it to be able to develop into whatever it's supposed to develop into. Yeah, that that's very much a concept that more than two introduced to me when I was really new in Relationship Anarchy. Yeah. Even though I think it's billed more as a polyamory book, I found it the most Relationship Anarchy-leaning polyamory book. Definitely. Yeah, so you've read it as well? Most of it. <laughs> it is It is sometimes well, repetitive, and it is... It's, it's not so much about being repetitive as that every chapter I read, I'm like, damn it, I have to figure that out now. Like, I realized that every oh, chapter was I like I had something I had to work through, awesome. and so I'd have to put it down and, like, work on that thing and then mm-hmm. go back to it, so I'm still not done working through That's awesome. the details. Cool. Useful. Um... Cool. So in terms of describing your, so I would normally call that having two adjacent or parallel dyads where you have two relationships where two people are involved in each. How would you define or describe the way you manage those relationships? Would you say they're like rules based or principles based? Would you say there are some common values or themes? Currently it's just kind of anarchy (laughs) to be quite honest. Sure. Um, I, I came out when I started my second relationship. I was current. I was in a, a triad with mm-hmm. my one of my partners and another partner who subsequently left. And okay, so it changed the structure of our relationship. And my primary partner, the one that I live with, um, his name's Scott. He is struggling with the concept of a relationship that doesn't include him. So it feels like anarchy in some ways right now because it's 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 working through a lot of things to try and get to the point where everybody's okay with everything. But essentially, it's two separate relationships that I have to balance. Right. Um, balance in terms of your time and energy commitments, like yeah. those sorts of things? Yeah. Yeah. And, and time spent and emotional investment. And it, it's... Sure. It can be challenging. Yeah, it sounds challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed when you were using the word anarchy, you're using it to mean like no rules whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Like as in totally chaotic. <laughs> yes. Currently, yes. It's getting better, but it, it was, it's, it's been a, a whole process of learning to enforce boundaries, which right. I hadn't been able to really do before effectively. And it's, it's uncomfortable doing it. And yeah. While boundaries you do are hard. It, yeah. And while you do it, the other party kind of crashes against those boundaries until they realize that it's going to stand. Right. Like this is a boundary. I have to respect it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely... That is definitely a challenge. I'm interested in talking about anarchy as a as a a more structured idea. I find often anarchists are not just about having no rules; they're about only living by rules that they agree to. Yeah, and perhaps I shouldn't have used the same terms for the different things. Anarchy sure. in my relationship right now is chaos. Relationship anarchy is not the same thing as what I want to be practicing. Right. It's right. just 
yeah, I should use or what you're words. currently practicing. Yeah, Perhaps it is what you want to be practicing. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I use the same word for two different things. Yeah. Cause it is colloquially used that way. And mm-hmm. that's something a lot of relationship anarchists come up against is people will expect that you just don't want any rules or that you don't take relationships seriously or that you don't want to make any commitments or that you don't love the same way other people do. There's all these stigmas that I find I have to struggle against whenever I introduce the notion of relationship anarchy to people. And I, I feel like in, in my relationship, it's, it's trying to go from a rules-based relationship to an agreement-based relationship. Mm-hmm. And in, in that transition is where there's that chaos because people expect you to follow the rules. But mm-hmm. when the rules change, how do they change, right? And so I'll, I'll say I'll be home around 11 to my partner. That means I'll be home at 11. To me, it means I'll be home around 11. Right. So 10 minutes difference for me isn't a big deal. 10 minutes for him is a broken commitment. Right. And that's so significant. For him. But, and, and, and for me, because I'm having to balance it. But we're thinking different thoughts. Right. And, and that's that transition that's, that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. I mean, not actually great, but I appreciated the answer. So where did you start with with getting involved in relationship anarchy because I have the feeling you didn't start at that end of the pool. Most people start at the monogamous end of the pool and they look at all the people swimming around and go, those people are crazy. I uh, was monogamous because I I, I was raised Mormon. Wow. Uh, So relationships don't happen until you're married. Sexual relationships are not supposed to happen until you're married. Uh, In the Mormon religion, you're not supposed to date until you're 18. You're allowed mm-hmm. to double date at 16 and date at 18. So you're allowed to double date at 16. Okay, that's that's interesting. So you can you can date so long as you have essentially two chaperones. You keep each other honest is the idea. Yeah, and then you can you can single date when you're 18. Um, I was pregnant when I was 18. <laughs> so, so clearly you took these these right to heart. Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I started with monogamy and okay. and ended up doing the serial monogamy because if you sure if you fall in love with somebody else, you can't possibly love the person you're with because you fell in love with somebody else. Right. And you can only love one person at a time. Yes. Therefore, yeah. clearly you didn't seriously love the last person. Exactly. And I mean, they weren't the one. It's even a Johnny Depp quote, right? He's like, if you fall in love with somebody else, clearly you weren't in love with the person you're with. Oh, it's, yikes. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I disagree with that, but that's, that was the rule, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't mm-hmm. be in love with more than one person. Yeah. And so when I was in my early twenties, I explored with like, extra sex partners with my right. partner, but that was kind of right. somewhere of swinging sure. type thing um, rather than full relationships. And it wasn't until much later that I started getting into more polyamorous relationships. Sure. How did you find the Mormonism piece in early life impacted the intimacy in your relationships moving into even monogamous dating? It, it still does. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of shame attached to uh, religious upbringings, especially ones like Mormonism, where your body is a temple and you know everything is sacred, right. and, and sex somehow despoils that temple. It's not a celebration or any kind of worship. It's literally dis- like spoiling the temple. Yeah, and in Mormonism, uh, women are subjugated to men in many ways too. So there's also that mm-hmm. power imbalance, and uh, right, and so that that comes up a lot. And not being able to advocate for my own needs and my own desires, masturbation is against mm. the rules. Like ev- every yeah. pleasure is not something you seek and right. so going into sexual relationships you end up uh having all kinds of issues because you can't advocate for yourself right. you weren't given any sex education hence the 18 pregnancy right um and you know you end up dealing with stis you end up dealing with teenage pregnancies sure. you end up dealing with all kinds of things because you just don't have the education yeah and and shame surrounding sex always mm-hmm. uh and so that's taken my entire life to un- undo yeah it sounds like a lifetime of work to yeah. undo that shame yeah 
Oof, heavy topics. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I definitely. Um, yeah, shame plays a large part in my life for different reasons. So it's definitely something I, I empathize with in like an adjacent kind of way. It's funny how it comes up in all different ways, and and yeah. when you get down to the core of it, it's the same bloody thing that yeah. you're dealing with every time. You just it just has different masks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny how it has different masks in one's own life, and it seems like it just like permeates through all of these different facets where you're like, but I'm not dealing with anything remotely related to sex. Why is this coming up for me? And it's it's linked back through this really weird twisted strands of things parents have said or things yeah. friends have said and ways that you've sort of extended the reach of that shame inadvertently yeah. or that someone else has. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It just fucking shows up everywhere. <laughs> Even like at dances and Mormon, Mormon dances, there was, you I know, love you had that to, they're called dances. You had That's to great. leave room for the Lord. Right. And the, yeah. Like, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. I, in fact, someone used that recently at a blues fusion dance um, called Coalescence, which happens every Sunday night mm -hmm. at Academy Duello in Vancouver. Plug, plug, plug. Actually, Scott wants to go there. So we oh, does really? need to go. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I actually, I love the community. It's, it's a really interesting mix of like, there is the occasional lost Christian person that shows up <laughs> that is just like, oh yeah, it's a dance. And then there's like the, the fun I, I, I'm, I hesitate to use the word writhing, um, but, but mass of, of humans that, <laughs> that um, is from more of the blues fusion, uh, polyamory, holding hands with kind of community. I'm mm -hmm. not very articulate in this moment, but. They're more, yeah, they're more open with their mm -hmm. bodies and touching and feeling and stuff like it that. Just, again, it just doesn't come with shame yeah, attached. exactly. And even that one piece just changes everything, even if it's not that they're necessarily looking to be highly sexual, because a lot of dancers aren't looking to be highly sexual with anyone. They're no. just enjoying dancing. Yeah. It still comes without shame for a lot of people if they don't have that, that same piece, mm -hmm. and that definitely changes the mood and the energy and, and the feel. For sure. Mm -hmm. So what would you say some of the intermediate stages were or the transition points like what made you decide to go from monogamy to swinging especially as it relates to intimacy because i'm um curious about that piece the swinging was in my youth was more about making my male partner happy oh geez um there was a, you know there's always that desire to have two women and so i i kind of just acquiesced to that in some cases and in some cases there were deals where it was supposed to be a trade, so my boyfriend and I had the girlfriend, and then I was supposed to go with the girlfriend boyfriend without my particular boyfriend. Oh, I see. So there was supposed to be that trade, and so we would do that thing, and then my partner was like, yeah, no, you're not going over there. And I'm like, actually, I'm going to go keep that commitment. Whether or not you like it, I'm going right. to go keep that commitment, because right. you can't take what you want and then not give back what you promised, right? So more of most of my relationships in my 20s was those kinds of relationship where it was very... And I had my first sexual experience with a woman... Uh, in that time of my life too and it was really uncomfortable because women aren't supposed to be aggressive and they're not they're just they're just I was not expecting the, the ex experience I had with this woman so it was kind of gun shy after that so there was there was a bit of that and then um, pregnancies and marriages yeah but marriages um, involved infidelity right because they're always looking for that other there's always, there was always that part of me that knew I was poly, but didn't know how to, didn't know what it was. Didn't know how to articulate it or ask again, advocating for what you wanted yeah. or needed. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. when you're young and supported by a partner and have a baby, like you, you're kind of also in a power situation too, where you don't have that power and to have to kind of 
yeah, you can't really take advantage of or learn anything more about that because you're you're in a situation. Mm-hmm. And so there were several incidences when or instances in my early twenties where my partner and I would have extra partners, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and it never went well. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, it never went well. And then in when I was got into the kink scene, that's mm-hmm. kind of when it became more of a healthy thing because then it was something you talked about and something that was acceptable and and. So my poly didn't end up even having to be sexual. You could just be close with other people, right. and that was okay, right? Like, in, when, you're, when you're religious, even friendships are dangerous with the opposite sex because there's, you know, there's uncontrollable urges, urges and such. And Of course, sinful <clears throat> inner nature, not to mention the whole dreaded emotional affair. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry. And, and any that. kind of touching can be viewed as problematic, right? Like, you're not right. supposed to be touching any other. And so when you right. enter into the kink scene and everything's a little bit more... Flexible. Flexible. And because you're dealing with, like, consent, people are more willing to be open and their bodies are a little bit more autonomous. And, like, you can you can just, you can lay on the bed with somebody without it being sex, without it being right. something that's going to lead to sex. It just, it's or intimacy, your right? Or necessarily. Exactly. But intimacy changes when yeah. you start to recognize your own autonomy and when you enter into situations or groups of people that mm-hmm. they feel the same way right yeah. and so intimacy became a different kind of thing when I entered the kink scene and that's when it turned into something that I could start looking at poly because then I kind of had the definition and the terms for it mm-hmm. um, so the very first kind of experience that I have with poly was my husband and I my second husband and I had a third essentially and she was our girlfriend but she was more in a relationship with him and I kind of liked it that way because I was attending school full-time at the time, and we had the three kids, and I worked full-time. Oh, jeez. So it was kind of like his distraction. <laughs> and and as soon as I stopped school, it went horribly sideways. Oh, I'm sorry to um, hear that. You know, it's fine, because then I was back in the situation, and right. I was the one who was like, I wasn't ready for that, because I, I right. set it up, but it, <clears throat> I didn't actually participate in it. So it was kind of oh, a yeah, failed experiment, that, right? That kind of feels like being left out a little. Yeah. And, and then when I came back, she felt left out, because right. I was now returning to the situation. So that didn't work out very well right and then so just to clarify so that was almost intended as a triad but it ended up being two dyads yeah where you didn't really have a relationship with her and where there were these expectations about fairness or equality that maybe went unspoken and unnegotiated and then exploded as soon as they went head-to-head yeah and a lot of it's on me because I didn't talk about it. I was just so focused on my own stuff and I just sure. really wanted him to be happy. And so I set up this thing that would make him happy. And and it it did. Well, I, I mean, wasn't there. It sounds exactly like a thing you would do. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> like it's like characteristically you to be like, I want him to be happy. So I organized and set up this thing for him to be happy. Pretty much. Yeah. And then my major relationships, like in terms of Polly, I have, with the same husband, I call it a slave mm-hmm. so I had a, a non-sexual relationship with another person at the same time so that was kind of my my major experience of poly was with one person mm-hmm. who I was married to and sexual with and one that I wasn't married to and wasn't sexual with mm-hmm. so that was my longest experience of what it, poly. It was, it was more of a service-based slash ms type relationship exactly okay yeah uh and then I met my current partner Scott uh when I was with my husband and it was supposed to be poly and it went horribly sideways again you know, um, I think it's important, though, for people to model fallibility, especially in positions of leadership. And when I when I looked at introducing you for this episode, all of the things that you do and accomplish like are very appreciated in the community. 
I think some of them, especially by more new individuals, are seen as independent of you because they don't know of the mythos that is Sarah. And that's intentional. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but but it's just, I think it's really important to model fallibility, that it's okay to screw things up and that people screw things up all the time. And just because someone's screwing something up doesn't mean they should stop like trying. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad at a thing. It just means they you know, haven't necessarily arrived yet yeah. at a skill set that makes them happier or with the right... With the with with a with an approach that works for finding people compatible, because I think that's something a lot of experienced people are sometimes guilty of is they'll take an approach that does not tend to attract compatible people, even though they have a lot of skills. Uh, yeah, and I think the two major failings that I have and consistently have is I pick people who are not poly, and say let's be poly. Uh, so that got you almost always is a part of this, the, a feature of my poly and why it fails or why it's challenging. Or, sure, sure, sure. Um, and the other feature of it is that I tend to end up with people who have mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And when you deal with mental health and poly, it's really That's complicated. Other, it is a whole other thing. I mean, yeah. speaking as a person that deals with depression, that deals with anxiety, that has had partners that deal with depression and anxiety. And now that I think about it, actually, a lot of my recent partners and even some of my if not all of my current partners. Well, let's suffice to say, without disclosing too much, I also deal with a lot of um, mental health stuff, mm-hmm. myself personally and in my relationships. Yeah. I, and I'm a caretaker by nature. Like, like I uh, had sure. custody of my brother when he was 11 and I was in my early 20s. I, didn't know I took care of my stepfather until he died. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my middle child has mental health issues that were ongoing and difficult for her entire life. Uh, so I've taken care of people my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to attract partners who need care. But I also tend to attract partners who need me. Because in my lifetime, it's safer when somebody needs me than when they love me. Oh, right? harrowing. And, yeah. And because that way, I know they won't leave me because they need me. Right. And for me, that's safety. Right. And so dismantling all that last year is how I've actually been able to kind of start setting my own boundaries and respecting myself because I don't need to be in relationships with people who need me anymore. I want to be in people in relationships with people who love me, but that was a switch I had to make. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the failings in my poly relationships has a lot to do with that. Yeah. Uh, So, and so now again, with my current partner trying to like change it from this, you need me and I'm comfortable here to this. I actually don't need you, but I still want to be with you. And how can we make that work and take right. care of me is really challenging because it, it shattered everything that we had right. for something different. It doesn't make it bad. It sure. just makes it different and it's change is really difficult. Definitely a step sideways. Yeah. And change is always really difficult, especially when you're taking the entire paradigm of a relationship and saying, actually, <laughs> yeah, let's flip this and do something totally different. So going back to where I was with my first husband when right. I met Scott, right? Um, we had already agreed, my husband and I, that we were going to break up. We were together because of my daughter, um, who's not his child, and agreed to raise her together until she was uh, out of high school. And uh, because he had broken one of our, con- like my husband and I, we, he had broken one of the vows of our relationship that mm-hmm. was just not something, something I can go back to, but we were close as friends. We wanted to raise this child. It was important that this kid got through school. So we made that commitment to each other. Yeah. And when I met Scott, uh, that he couldn't maintain it because he, I think he believed at the end of the day that we would get through it and we would stay married and Mm -hmm. we would stay in love and stay in relationship. And so he really tried to convince me that we should be together. Like 
doing all the things that I've asked him to do for years that he now was all of a sudden doing all the time. It, right. You know, so the relationship trying. failed fast because he was trying too hard. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, he well, because then it got it, it got to the point where it, it was almost violent sometimes, right? Because he was so frustrated. Because I'm like. I'm stating my boundaries and he's like, well, thinking he can right. change my mind. Right. And so that, that disconnect, right. And feeling, he was mm. feeling replaced. I mean, there was all kinds of horrible things that happened. I yeah. felt really hard for Scott and it yeah. was really apparent and it really damaged my relationship immediately. That's um, unfortunate. Yes. Except I wasn't supposed to be with him. I was supposed to be with Scott. And like, I, you just had this feeling that you were more compatible with Scott. Yeah. So it was, it was easier and it worked better. Yeah. So I mean, that does kind of sound like a replacement situation, it if, was. I, if I may. Okay. Yeah, All right, it's then. unfortunate. I didn't sure. want that to be the case. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I wasn't willing to put the effort into somebody who had already violated our agreements. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It's really hard to repair agreements. It's like once a person has been infidelitous in a relationship, it's not like you can just open your relationship or become polyamorous and that's somehow magically going to fix a damaged monogamous relationship. If it's damaged, that damage has got to be repaired first. And sometimes that repair can take 10 years, a lifetime, six months. Yeah. It depends on the, it depends on the people. It depends on the incident that happened. Either way, it's really hard to repair trust in a relationship. And to all the people currently trying to do so, I mean, I'm not saying good luck in like a sarcastic way. I mean, like genuinely, like good on you for making an effort. And I really hope it works for you. I haven't seen it work in any of the friends that I have that have attempted it. Have you? I think you'll see it work with Scott and I. Okay. So, I mean, I think, I think we can be a good example of that because okay. that's what we're working through in a lot of ways right now. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> and I was willing to do that with Scott where I wasn't willing to do it with my husband. Got you. So, yeah. But we'll see. I, it's, it's, still, it's still on the table, right? It's still not sure. finished. So we never know. You never know until it's over. The instant reaction I had was the... Um, there's an episode of The Simpsons, and Bart's line is, well, maybe I'll shut my big mouth. Like I said, saying. we're super private, and that's intentional, right? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> that's great. Um, right, so we talked about where you started. Oh, yeah, and so then we, Scott mm -hmm. and I have had several failed attempts at Polly as well. And I think it, again, has more to do with both of our mental health issues, my inability to kind of separate love and, and need and stuff like that and being a caretaker and to the extent that I was damaging myself being a caretaker sure. and his mental health kind of playing into it and so we have had two failed triad situations uh, in triads our, are so hard like suck. I've I've seen several triads in friends of mine and it always looks magical from the outside like people on the outside I, I think look into triads and go, oh my God, what a glorious paradise situation. Why, how, how does someone make that work? And like, why can't I make that work for me? Maybe I'll go and try a triad with no further reading or other education. Um, and then they go on their merry way and, you know. Yeah. Triads are the hardest possible relationships. They're just so challenging. Yeah. It's, it's the whole fear of if you have, say, for example, two children, the notion of, oh, I don't want to play favorites you're in that sort of a dynamic where you're going to have two people that love you, presumably, that <laughs> depend on you in, in some ways for possibly emotional support. I don't mean depend necessarily in like a caretaking kind of way, but you have these situations that are incredibly challenging. And unless you, like you said earlier, um, before we started the podcast, unless you're a certain kind of person, like it's really hard to make that work. You really have to come at it from that place of, we love each other differently. It's not about comparing amounts of how much we... It's the same thing for sibling rivalry, right? Mm -hmm. 
It's like, you just, you, they, I love my parents differently. My parents love me and my siblings differently. And if you can't take that tack, you're always going to experience that jealousy through childhood. Yeah. And if your parents don't have the tools equipped to help you navigate that, you're going to form a lot of those comparative and competitive strategies around love and intimacy that you're most likely going to port forward into your, um, absolutely. Yeah. Into your romantic yeah. relationships and sexual ones. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the two triad situations I've had with Scott, one was not living and one was living. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one, and in both cases, the onus on me or the situation that I put myself in was that I said uh, there was women that he was interested in. And I said, sure. I didn't actually help choose those women. I didn't really participate in the actual forming of the relationship. It was just kind of formed for me. And I just tried to make the best of it. And that doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. In practice, that doesn't sound like that would be super effective. No, I mean, I like these people. Sure. Um, but I didn't love these people. Well, that's Got not entirely you. true. Like I did, but I love them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt like a lot of our relationship was, was all, was kind of formed around trying to make me love her as much as he did. Got you. And, and that just doesn't, doesn't work. And again, there's that sense of fairness that just doesn't really play out in And he really and... wanted to be, have it fair and be par- like parody mm-hmm. between the two of us. And he, and in some ways that worked and in some ways it didn't because I felt like I was the one being rejected in those situations because mm-hmm. he put so much effort into relationships and, and there's challenging parts about triads. Like when sure. anniversaries are challenging. Do you do mine and his relationship or his and her relationships or our three or do all three like how does how does that work no, right? probably do all three it, personally it, but it's it easy to really say and it gets and 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 you don't it, yeah it just gets very very complicated and so mm-hmm. during the period that we were had a live-in uh, third partner mm-hmm. uh that's kind of when my life went to hell and i had to get therapy because i was the one actively destroying the relationship not necessarily on purpose sure but i wasn't happy and i wasn't comfortable and i had i had things to work out specifically this need versus love thing Mm -hmm. um because when she moved in with us he didn't need me anymore um right and that affected your sense of security from being needed and providing because if he didn't need me i was on my way out right um and so i had to fix that kind of in myself and and when we had done everything together and all of a sudden he wasn't available to do those things with me and she didn't have the same interest that i did right and she had absolutely no interest in attending mvk and and those kinds mm-hmm. of things where it was things that scott and i had done together for years and years and years because he was a promoter in victoria i was a promoter here it was just Got you. it was the thing we had in common and we no longer had in common mm-hmm. and motorcycles like we used to ride and she didn't so it was something that went on the wayside and so i ended up having to learn to spend a lot of time alone mm-hmm which ended up being fine because I'm, I like my own company, but when that relationship ended, he all of a sudden wanted to do all those things again. And I had kind of moved on. Got you. So th- we're kind of still in that transition phase where right. there's this, I, like I, I grew up or I changed my, my relationship with him mm-hmm. because he wasn't available right. and he just expected to step back into it when he was I, available right. again. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, that relationship started to change because I met my second partner, mm-hmm. uh, and I went to them at that point and negotiated or tried to negotiate that I wanted to change the nature of our relationship because mm-hmm. we were a closed triad with what we called guest stars. So we would have people over to do Got group you. sex or whatever. Um, and a so closed triad with guest stars sounds fun. It was. <laughs> I'm not sure how that would work in practice, like logistically. It was actually pretty it was okay. okay. Like, the emotions and the way that things were managed felt pretty yeah, wholesome. Yeah, as long as we picked the right people, we had some really good people that came in and, Amazing. and it worked really well in that sense for, That's for us. That's really hot and really awesome. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And so when I when when I met this other person, I wanted to negotiate and say like I want this relationship outside of our relationship, and it was agreed at the time that the other woman in my triad and I we talked it out and we had agreed that like look we're not actually in a relationship we may say that we are it's like a v it was a v and yeah and we acknowledged at that point that we had both made room for each other in in our own lives because we both wanted to be with scott ah. right and so there was that shift and i was really comfortable with that shift because it actually represented what i felt was true about our relationship and it allowed me to kind of shift the way i look at it like i don't have yeah. to try and force my way into her life and she didn't yeah. have to try and be my partner oh that's we so could just exhausting live in in, in conjunction or like side by side yeah and but it ended within a month of that really um that's so sad because it sounds like you finally got to like an authentic place where you could just experience the tribe you had her and i did or not yeah oh i see but then when i would but scott was uncomfortable with the other relationship because it didn't include him and we've never done that before and so he started feeling threatened and so sorry this other relationship yeah he was threatened by my other relationship because you had a relationship outside of the triad yeah i see and because of that, I would go out on dates with my other partner, and he would spend all that time lamenting to our live-in partner about me being on this other date instead oh of using goodness. that time to be with her. And of course, she obviously did not take well to that, right? Because she was ce- sort of celebrating when I got this other relationship because it meant that she had time alone with with Scott, right? And she was really looking forward to that, and it kind of actually worked for her and I. We were gonna, right? That was gonna work out well. It sounds like everyone was happy but Scott. Yeah. And so it it just died a very quick death after that. I'm so that. sorry. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So there, I mean, it, it, in that sense, it kind of sucked. Um, I guess that's what you'd call an N configuration. Yeah. Because it's like a V where one of the distal tips of the V has an extra connection out yeah. to the side. And it. I mean, it wasn't. I had waited a long time when when our first failed triad. We we had kind of agreed that we would work on our relationship. And then branch out because there was between the two triads we had, there was somebody that I had fallen for and Scott lost his mind over it. And so I, I withdrew out of that relationship and we agreed that we would work on our relationship. And it was several, was it within a couple months that we met our third partner, like the one that we ended up moving in with. And so there was no time to work on our own relationship. So I was kind of hoping we were working through it with, with this third partner mm-hmm. but at the end of the day nothing we hadn't touched it so when I asked to open the relationship then I had to start dealing with all that stuff that I've been putting aside for years and years right and so we've been it's been a rough year <laughs> Polly, Polly makes you work on your shit it really does and yeah. so it's been a rough year I like I'm celebrating a year anniversary with my second partner uh in August oh that's amazing uh but it's been a rough year I know the second partner mm-hmm. they are me he is amazing mm-hmm. yes yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. Great. So, wow, you kind of answered a lot of the questions I had just organically in that conversation. I was going to ask you about how you got involved in this lifestyle, and I think you filled that in quite well. By accident, essentially. That's okay. I mean, it's, <laughs> it still counts. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to move on to talking more about, like, social concerns surrounding being in an alternative lifestyle. Sure. Um, who in your family knows, and if so, how have they processed your lifestyle? Everyone knows. Oh, that's awesome. Everyone in my family knows as well. Yeah. How did, how did your family take it? Um, because I was poly after I was kinky, poly was not a huge, <laughs> not a huge deal, frankly. <laughs> um, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my dad lives in Australia, Australia, and I haven't okay. seen him in about 20 years. When I told okay. him I was poly through Facebook, he didn't answer me. I don't know if that means he has an opinion. 
I don't really care after 20 years of, well, I mean, after 20 years of sure. no contact and he's on wife number six. Sure. We're not going to, I'm not going to sit here in judgment or let him judge me. I just, I just don't care. Right. And my, my mother is unique. I mean, my mother is still Mormon and, oh, wow. and she, uh, she just actually takes everything with a grain of salt. She's been really good about it. Cause I think she recognizes that, you know, if she takes a position, then she takes a step out. Right. But on I the see. other hand, she doesn't have a huge involvement in my day to day life. Like my kids don't know who she is. I think my son's met her twice. So she's not actively really involved in my life, mm-hmm. but I'm also, you know, I'm a kind of take it or leave it kind of person. I'll tell you the truth. If you don't like it, don't talk to me. Don't give me a, don't call me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I can't live in the shadows anymore. Yeah. My kids know, uh, and they've known that my just, daughters. That sounds hard. How is it being an out parent? It's awesome. Yeah. I think so. I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Uh, I told my daughters when I started with MVK because I ended up having all kinds of mm-hmm. things in my house that belonged to MVK. Right. And they were 12 and 11 at the time. So it was kind of, it was kind of the time. Right, right, right. And it, you know, it's age appropriate. I'm involved yeah. in, in kink, right? But what does that mean to an 11 or 12 year old? Like you're not going to go into details or anything like that. You're going to give them age appropriate yeah, information. Except, you know, they take very different paths. My one daughter was like, oh, I don't care. And my other daughter started doing research and got into trouble online. I had to put oh, buckers shoot. and oh, she was talking to predators and like it. So it really oh, depended no. on, and it wasn't so much because I, I disclosed it's because I didn't give as much information to my younger daughter. And then she found pictures on my computer and then oh, she no. started researching based on that. Yeah. That's sounds... how I had the conversation. It may have gone differently. How, how bad were the pictures, if I may ask? They were of me and my husband. Oh, no. Tied, like, tied up, like, those kinds of pictures. Okay, Wax so scenes. not as bad as it could have been. No. Could have been a lot worse than that. Could have been a lot that. worse. But okay. it was bad enough, right? And for, and for clarity for the audience that's, that's listening... Um, when we're talking about these wax scenes and being tied up, it doesn't necessarily mean penetration or any kind of no, sex happening. Like he was actually palette wrapped, and I was doing right. um, wax play on his on his bottom. Right. So like he was upside down. So if anything, it would just look really weird to a person that didn't know anything about yeah what a scene is yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. So then she started doing research, and so I found Got out you. I found out through all like bad methods that she was getting into trouble online doing kink stuff with predators and adults and I had to kind of shut that down yeah. and with my son he's and eight. when you say doing kink stuff with predators and adults you mean online chat yeah okay like they were just clarifying oh, yeah. here <laughs> very good very good point they they would like tell her to do things like tell her to masturbate or tell her to oh geez uh, yeah that's uh, yeah. I'm sorry to go to my inner Morty but like it was, it was, definitely I was like ah oh, geez it was uncomfortable that sounds really <laughs> uncomfortable yeah and then with my son, he was much younger. He's eight years younger than my oldest child. Right. And so he was two or three when I started with MVK. Right. And many, many years later, there was a storage war episode where they had all kinds of kink paraphernalia that they found in a locker. Right. And my son is like, I bet you that's what they do at MVK. <laughs> and right. My, right. my daughter was like, oh my God, freaking out. So she called me and right, do right, you know right. what he just said to me? And so. Right, right, right. I talked to my son and I'm like, I can tell you, uh, and then you'll have to lie for me or I can just, we can just agree that we're not going to talk about it until you're ready to talk about it. And he's like, I don't want to know. So cool. we didn't talk for many, many more years about it because he just wasn't interested. Right. Uh, and then my son, 
was given more context because we ended up in litigation over my right. kink and my poly when right. I was trying to take him with me to Victoria and the grandmother fought back and tried to take custody. So that it all came out then. So the fact that I was out was really useful at that point because right. you can't get slaughtered with information if it, the information's already out there. Yeah, they, it protects they, you in exactly. a sense. So my kids already knew, so they're like, well, I don't care because she tried to out me to my kids and those Yikes. kinds of things and so they already knew and right. it makes it much easier and so with my my son moved back into my house this year right and that was a bit uncomfortable because you have a dungeon i have a dungeon in my basement and i do pro work out of my basement right and talking again about pro doming which is yeah various kinds of of kink activities that you would be doing in exchange for funds yeah okay uh and, and so the fact that I'm out to my kids, it's simply a matter of just telling the truth. I'm going to go downstairs and work. Or even when I'm having sex with my partners, I'm like, we're going to go have sex. So you may want to put your headset on or go to your room or whatever, but right. don't don't come knock on the door. And and I prefer it that way because he's like, okay, see you later. Right? Yeah, he's like, I'm going nowhere near that. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, you know, he doesn't want to walk in on that. So just no. tell him. Yeah. And, and so... I like being out to my kids, but it also allows my daughters to ask me questions about menstruation, about sexuality, right. about their bodies, right. about everything. And consent, so we talk about consent. That's so know. valuable. Just even the consent piece alone coming yeah. out of all of that, if nothing else, is so valuable. Yeah. And like my son talked about a girl at school and called her a slut. And so we were able to have a conversation oh about well, what's a slut and why is she yeah. a slut? Cause she's female and you're not, right. you know, and it allows us to talk about condoms and condom use and how to put condoms on effectively and, right. And pass them out to him and his friends. Like there's a lot of value in being yeah. out to my children. Um, makes you the cool mom. It really does. Yeah, it really, <laughs> it really does. <laughs> cause I'm the, I'm the house where my son can have sleepovers cause right. if they're going to be having sex, they might as well be doing it in my house instead of somebody's backyard. Yeah. Right. I, like I can't tell you the weird places I had sex as a child because I wasn't allowed to do it at home. Right. It's dangerous. Yeah. I would much rather he's doing it at my house. Yep. Um, same thing with drug use and alcohol use. Like, yeah. if you if you open up the lines of communication, they'll talk to you about anything. Yeah. And that's I, the advantage of being out to your kids. And again, it comes back to clear boundary setting of mm-hmm. being like, if I think that you are in danger or that someone else is in danger, I may not be able to keep your confidence. Mm-hmm. But provided you're not in danger and no one else is in danger, yeah, I'll, I'll keep your confidence. Like, exactly. being able to have that clear map for mm-hmm. teenagers so that they know how much to disclose to you without getting themselves in too much trouble, but so they can get that maximum support and benefit and information. Yeah. I'm, I mean, not that I'm a parent, so I mean, what the fuck do I know about all this? <laughs> some, of it, some of it's elementary and some of it's nuanced, right? Sure. Parenting is, it's not something you're ever taught. You just have to learn it as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not out at work, particularly, right. although baby steps, because every time uh, it comes up, I do mention, like, people will ask about my boyfriend <laughs> and I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, which one? That's funny. Um, I like it. And it's like the it. shock, because the question, the, always the question is, do they know about each other? Yeah. Of course they know, of course they know about, about each, each other. other. But that's always the first question. It you always get. raises more questions than it answers, though. Because if you say that, if you were to say something unethical, like they don't know about each other, people would be like, oh, I have a map for this. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand what this is. But the second you're like, yeah, of course they know about each other. People are like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. And they don't ask any questions at that point. So which is which is great. I'm like the anomaly. They're all like, who is this person? Right. And I kind of like it. But that's my new experiment because I have nowhere else to be left to be out. Right. And um, I have good reason to want to be out everywhere. The more I'm out, the right. less I can get hurt. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's important to me. I find it interesting because I'm always cautious not to like out myself in places for no good reason. But if it comes up, I'll be out. So 
people will ask me something like, what did you do on the weekend? Oh my God. The question that every kinkster and non-monogamous person like loathes, especially if they're not out because people will ask innocuously and it's kind of a microaggression. Like it kind of reminds you that you're something other, that you have something shameful or that you have something to hide, that you're not allowed to be authentic about who you are. So I've taken to just answering people literally in as least explicit terms as possible. So if someone asks what I did on the weekend, I'll be like, I went to a Metro Vancouver Kink Dungeon party, and then I had a, you know, I had my partner over on Sunday, which was great. And then I had a different partner over on, you know what I mean? Like, it'll, I'll just, I'll just explain what I did for the whole weekend, and without going into any graphic detail. And hopefully, if people don't want to know about it, they just won't ask any follow-up questions. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of uh, times at work where somebody's like, what are you doing this weekend? And I like, go through the list. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. I, I, <laughs> just I, choose not I, to say anything. Yeah. And when my son was playing hockey, he's not this year for the first time. I, it was always, I'm going to a hockey tournament. If I was leaving town, people would be like, I'm going to a hockey tournament. But then right. with the grandmother, she would also go to a hockey tournament. So I couldn't use that excuse with his grandmother because she right, would know I right. wasn't going. And with my current right. boss, his son plays hockey. So I had to be really careful <laughs> that I don't, I don't use that excuse and have yeah, yeah. so I right. can be really careful with that one now the art of being closeted pretty much yeah mm-hmm. oh wow yeah the next question is how are you better equipped socially because of your lifestyle does it grow you yes it grows me um, some of the experiences that I've been having having two parallel relationships is mm-hmm. because Scott and I've been together for almost six years Sometimes you don't listen to each other as well. Sometimes you don't right. communicate. Sometimes you have really bad habits. And with my other relationship, it's newer. So you end up being more willing to listen because you don't have that baggage. Shift. And so there are things that come up in my newer relationship. And I've had to go, oh, I'm totally right. doing that thing that Scott's accusing me of doing. And I'm doing it all the time. And now I'm doing it with someone else. And it's clear this is a pattern. This isn't a chemistry thing with one person. It's a me thing. Yeah. And so then I have to go back to my first relationship and go, you know what? You're right. And I'm sorry. And I'm going to fix it. And I'm sorry I didn't hear you. Right. And Um, like this, this advantage in our relationship brought to you by non-monogamy. Pretty much. yeah. Yeah. And even things like consent violations. Like I talk about consent all the time. And we're all guilty mm-hmm. of consent violations. Sure. And I've done it in my relationships. And I didn't even I didn't even really recognize it because you get really used to being a certain way with certain people. And it actually can be really toxic sometimes. Especially in small ways. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word consent violation, when they hear those words, they think about big egregious ones. Mm-hmm. And, and I think just to translate, I think what you're saying is more of the, the little ways that we dismiss people in long-term relationships and yeah. how that can become toxic over time yeah and yeah. i mean it's little thing it is little things like i he didn't my second partner didn't want a certain activity i'm like oh if i could just if i could just show him how good it is he'll like it right and that's that's, that's a, a violation, dangerous right? thought yeah totally is and he totally called me on it and and I, he was right mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. but it makes me reflect and i go back to my other relationship i'm like i have actually been doing this thing that scott's been saying i've been doing all along and i was too pig-headed or hard-headed stubborn to, to sure. be willing to look at it because yeah. how could he possibly be right Right. You know, um, and so... And there's gendered, there's gendered baggage there, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think we, we get stuck in our own ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then even being able to talk about the mental health piece um, yeah. has been really critical because you don't really recognize how that plays in. But when you start talking about communication styles and about um, negotiations, it actually ends up cropping up all the time. Have you, have you looked at nonviolent communication? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I yeah. find that so helpful for boundaries because before I had that book, I had no good map for boundaries and yeah. personal accountability. And once I had the framework of like, oh, when I describe feelings to people, they need to be about internal states, not about you make me feel this. That changed everything for me. Yeah. Uh, and even things with mental health, like we went at ConvertCon, I was yep. I was in a class and they were talking about mental health and... and I think I was in that class. She Yeah, she was talking about how... Um, like boundaries boundaries in mental health and how it can actually end up being like you feel like you're uh I'm trying to figure out how she put it but basically it can mask into different things and so you you're like well i've been putting up with your shit this whole time so i right. deserve that you treat me like this or i oh, you, you, know, you know i'm gonna do this thing that i want to do because screw you i'm putting up with all your crap right. so i feel like i'm Entitled. Entitled to do this thing. Yeah. That's also a violation. And, mm -hmm. and be, but because you get so exhausted with the mental health piece that mm -hmm. you just like, screw it, I'm doing it anyways. And that's, that's not okay. But I, right. again, something I didn't see. Yeah. I didn't see that I was, that the mental health was making me do things that weren't ethical. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, it, it really makes you be cognizant of the way you act and how you right. treat people and what you do. Yeah. And that is fundamental in, in relationships. And pe people yeah. in vanilla and non-monogamy generally don't do that stuff because they don't think they have to. Right. Well, if you're in a long-term relationship for six years, you get stuck in those toxic patterns and you don't have an outside perspective. And the great thing about non-monogamy is you still don't have an outside perspective on your relationship, maybe, but you have an outside perspective on you mm -hmm. when you are in this other relationship. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really subtle distinction, but it's important because I think a lot of people who are not who are monogamous might look at um being in two dyads being in two relationships with one person and think oh they might be comparing themselves or critiquing the other relationship and i don't think that's the piece at all i think that's really not helpful however just having the perspective like you mentioned earlier of being with your second partner and going oh shit i did that thing again and this person called me on it and then going back and doing the work on yourself mm -hmm. to sort of look at how that cascades and affects every other relationship and not necessarily just romantic relationships either it's yeah. neat how that spills over into other absolutely and you know when you're talking about how i and earlier i was doing like serial monogamy right mm -hmm. like you always assume that it's the other person's problem but and there's that saying of you know if if everybody has the same problem with you the problem is you but you don't often see that right because <laughs> your relationships go sour and then you don't have any reason to fix them because you just end the relationship right whereas when you're in a multiple relationship situation and one person is complaining that behavior exists and yeah. you have the responsibility to fix it yeah. whereas when you're in a monogamous relationship you don't have to fix it because people will just work around it right and, and i think i think it's easier to see too how a problem that really exists might potentially threaten other people you love. Mm -hmm. It's like when it, when you have one partner, it's adversarial in a sense. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't think it ever necessarily should be in a monogamy, I think in practice a lot of the time, even in my non-monogamy, if I have a conversation with one partner and the partner says something about me, I might, I mean, I do my best not to get defensive, but I might get defensive. Mm -hmm. I might get hurt. I might have any number of potentially negative reactions. And that might put me into an adversarial mindset where I'm thinking, oh, well, this person also does these things, or this person does does that thing. Absolutely. And, and it can be really um, tit for tat, yeah. uh, right? It can, be, it can be really unhealthy in that moment. And I think being able to take a step back once that partner leaves and go, ah, shit, whatever is there, I need, I need to unearth that because mm -hmm. that's going to threaten how much I love this other person. It's going to affect these other people in my life who I really emotionally maybe I don't want to say rely on but I'm emotionally connected to invested with yeah so yeah you really do get that almost cross-pollination like you learn something from relationship a and it positively affects your Absolutely. other relationships and you know we talk about monogamy 
and I think there is a there is a battle like we talk about it being controversial or adversarial mm-hmm. it is adversarial because in a monogamous relationship you're asking your partner to fulfill every single need you have right. and if they can't you get bitter because you're not allowed to go get it somewhere else. You're not right. allowed to source that somewhere else. You're not allowed to fill it right. in any other way. Right. So you must therefore do without it. Or you trade that you go and be satisfied being unsatisfied about some things in exchange for yeah. them being satisfied with being unsatisfied about some things. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly limiting. Mm-hmm. And so when you're poly, you can expand it rather than, yeah. than just be bitter about it. And I mean, people can still practice social monogamy mm-hmm. um, in the sense that they can be have one domestic partner. Mm-hmm. They can have a quote-unquote hierarchical primary partner or whatever. I mean, I'm, I don't subscribe to the hierarchical model. Personally, I don't like it. I think there's a distinction between a hierarchy of obligations, which makes sense if you have kids with someone. Yes, I can agree with that. And a hierarchy, a hierarchy of control. And there's a big distinction there between like, yeah, I mean, people are going to have varying obligations and they're going to have, maybe they share a mortgage with someone Mm -hmm. that's never going to put them on the same footing as any other partner, but it doesn't have to, you don't have to make the partnerships equal. They can just be different partnerships that, but like you said, in terms of, I don't know what this partnership's going to turn into that decision not to put, put people in boxes to as they say in more than two, to plant the seeds in the garden and you don't know whether it's going to be a flower, a shrub, or a tree. Or if, it'll, if it won't thrive at all. Or if it won't thrive at all. Yeah. And if you end up growing a tree in your flower garden, it's going to throw some shade on all the things planted around it. And that might require repotting some things, yeah. but it doesn't mean those plants have to die. Like you can, you can still hold all of those relationships, usually. It's just a question of rejigging and I guess just being as ethical and considerate as you can be, as kind as you can be to others, while still looking to get your needs fulfilled and to live the most fulfilling and rich life yeah. that you can. Because I think you're not as angry, um, like with with Scott in particular. Like mm-hmm. the fact that I don't have I don't have to go to him for everything. It's it, it gives him it gives him a pass, right? I can't do that. Okay, great. That's fine. That's right. I still love you. I don't need that from you. Like I, I can yeah. get that somewhere else. And I think, I don't think you have that same flexibility. And so you, yeah, you really it, don't in monogamy. No, at least not in my experience of it. Not my experience either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it makes your partner responsible for your needs in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Because and they're the only source you can get those needs filled. And we should be responsible for our own needs. I agree. I also think we should be responsible for our own needs. But that really does come into a clash with exclusivity where a person has a sort of ownership. I've often said that monogamous marriage is a subset of consensual slavery. And that might throw people for a loop who aren't familiar with consensual slavery. But there is a sense of ownership. And Mm -hmm. not just in the traditional um, husbands own their wives, 1950s master slave type thing. I'm talking more about... Even the more symmetrical marriages, monogamous marriages that people have really strived for in modern times, there's still an attempt to make it a symmetrical ownership. And it still comes back to an ownership of a person's sexual being or of their sexual life, with some exceptions for masturbation. Or their time, even. Sure. Yeah. That any time they have that's free time is your free time because you're their partner. This is one of those things that we're working through right now because he believes that. It's a hard one. And I'm like, this is my time and I share it with you. It's not your time that I'm taking away. Yeah. But it's a learned thing and it's hard. Absolutely. And that framing makes all of the difference Mm -hmm. in non-monogamy. Because when a new partner comes in, if all of a sudden you used to, you know, spend time on a certain day of the week and you're like, well, I'm really excited to see you two days from now. And the person's like, oh, but we used to see each other every day. And it's like, yes, I did used to choose to spend my time that way. And it doesn't change how much I love you. 
it just change how much it just changes how much time we're going to be spending together. Yeah. But to be honest, if you think about the types of relationships that are twenty four seven live in relationships where you are spending quote unquote seven days a week with each other, you're not really spending that time with each other. You're spending that time around each other. Like if I'm doing my taxes or if I'm lying in bed for an extra couple of hours, I'm not really spending time with someone in any kind of focus fashion mm-hmm. but there is this idea of ownership that comes with that 24 7 live-in style relationship where all of a person's time feels like your time yep yeah and it's not it's not no and i think <laughs> as soon as you take ownership back of your own time all of a sudden it becomes the inverse question of when are we spending time together and there's gratitude for that time instead of why is this eight hours blocked out that we could have spent together it's yep. not about like you know the hundreds of hours that you could spend together it's about the eight hours you can't yeah it's the it's the inverse problem and exactly. it's, in my opinion, ass backwards. Yep. Cool. <laughs> but it's, it's still, it's something that has to be learned, right? And, yeah. and it's, it's hard to learn, especially when you feel like you're the one losing time. Mm-hmm. It, it's complicated. Yeah. And there's an emotional component for sure. Yeah. It's a bit of a blow to go from, I had all the time and now I have all the time minus this one eight hour period. You would think that that one eight hour period wouldn't matter, but it matters a lot. It's like the difference between everything's fine and dumpster fire. Pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. I like that we both experienced this. <laughs> so I was going to ask how it impacts the intimacy um, of your relationships, but I think we're covering that quite well. I was also going to ask why people choose to practice it and what advantages and disadvantages it has. I will let you say a word on the advantages and disadvantages, not that I'm letting or anything like that. We talked about a lot of the advantages did. and disadvantages. Um, the advantage, I think we talked a little bit more of like learning about yourself and, and those sure. kinds of things. Yep. The disadvantages is time is limited mm-hmm. um and i want to spend all of my time with both of them and i can't i, I mean i can't because i it's just not cool but I, I i yeah i mean that would be a very complicated thing to work out to try and spend a hundred percent of your time with one partner or the other or both yeah i, I mean i do already because i spend I'm a lot of time with, with both, both with one or the other Got um you. but I, I just, I, it's like wanting to have two lives, right? Like I really enjoy my life with Scott and I really enjoy my life with my other partner and mm-hmm. I would love to grow them both. And yes. So they get to the point where they just like tag team out on the way out or in the door. I, I mean, that'd be, that'd be my ideal, but I like how this is your fantasy. You're <laughs> like, yeah, if they could just high five on the way in and out of the door. Pretty much. But at this point they can't even be in the same space. Oh, I'm um, sorry. So that. when we talk about disadvantages, that's definitely one of them is that sometimes yeah it just doesn't there's when we talk about earlier um about i pick people who are not poly and so i'm dealing with two people who are not really poly new poly is all of the growth new poly is all of the suffering yes but it's where you get all of the advantage from it's like that's that's doing all the growth and all the struggle and then as soon as you're through that okay i i I don't i don't want to over promise and under deliver here because a lot of non-monogamy is struggle as is a lot of relationships, I think. But but as soon as you're through the, the majority of the work to do inside of oneself, it then just becomes, okay, how what work do we have to do to be on the same wavelength? Yeah. And assuming that you're working with partners who have also done all of their own internal work, and hashtag never happens, um, then, and, and same for ourselves too, like, because we're never done yeah. our stuff. Then the only work you have to do is like aligning your relationship and getting it like, set up and working like getting to a place where you know each other getting to a place where you work well together mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of work there and then there's all the maintenance that normally happens in all relationships and that's okay yeah yeah 
it's getting through the part that then that's where we're at right now in a lot of ways with our relationship mm -hmm. and he's doing the work right now mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to support him and hold my boundaries at the same time it's super hard because like you can't tell people to work faster no presumably and they're going as hard as they can they are and and again you add in that mental health component and it gets really complicated and yeah. so he's addressing his mental health really for the first time in his life um, wow. and that's challenging that's, that's there's a lot. lot there's a lot going on there and and it's again about consent and it's again about pushing like there's some issues I have pushed on because I'm like I need this now or I'm leaving the relationship like I cannot right this is not okay but like we waited six months for Scott to be okay with having sex mm -hmm. um, it's a long time that's a long time um, and like we're, al we're almost at a year and there's still all kinds of things that we're not supposed to do and that's not totally fair because Scott's not saying no you can't do those things but when I raise them he's like sure go do whatever you want I don't care I don't care I don't care clearly right. he cares right? right you got you got feedback that you didn't feel comfortable acting on yeah because you felt like regardless of what's being said there's a lot of non-verbal communication happening yeah and I feel really uncomfortable with this and yeah. I don't want to destroy this relationship therefore and again you're looking for enthusiastic consent and I'm right. not getting it right and so I'm waiting I'm to my best of my ability I'm waiting until I can get to the point where he actually is saying yes I'm okay with it like yes I want you to go and be fed and get your needs met yeah. and I'm good over here on my own and it's, it's little things right now it's like I don't post pictures of, of my second partner and I sure um, because it makes him squirrely he's not on my he's not on my relationship profiles I like I avoid talking about him on social media a lot like there's there's those kinds of things wow, because okay. it makes him uncomfortable and and he's feeling threatened he's feeling replaced and and we're working through them got you. um so you're giving an amazing amount of patience and an amazing amount of time to working through this with a long-standing partner and also simultaneously a partner that came out of a lot of replacement-y style early poly or or more like almost monogamish thinking yeah and when you have a partnership for, that's a product of that, like it's really hard to go to a super healthy non-replacement type of polyamory where you just have multiple healthy relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like if I force it, there will never be a chance that it'll get better. Yeah, if you, I completely agree. Sometimes forcing it is the worst way to make it better because you'll get... Um, it's the word I'm looking for. It's like cooperation, but it's like a... It's like a coerced cooperation almost. Yeah. Compliance, I, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Yeah. You get compliance where someone's, like, willing to do the thing, but they never go through the period of struggle where they do the work on themselves. Yeah. So they always carry some of that resentment with them, and it's emotionally taxing. And yeah, and I, I don't want that for him. Like, and I don't, right. want, to, I don't want him to be unhappy. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be unhappy, and his right. actions are making me unhappy. And the... Or the Rephrase. You've got this. No, I'll rephrase. Choosing to meet his needs is making me unhappy. Got you. Yeah, um, that and, makes sense. And at some point, it has to end. Because yeah. at this point, choosing to meet his needs is sacrificing my other partner's needs. Right. And sacrificing my own needs. And so we're caught in this, this crossfire where we're trying... Like you, they say in, in more than two to go at the pace of the slowest person. Ah. Uh. Um, we're trying, but sometimes that slowest person knows that if they just drag their heels, they never have to get on board. Yeah, and so there's that there's that push pull with yeah. Scott a little bit. Like, like he just feels like if he doesn't do anything, he doesn't ever have to do anything. Right. And so I'm having to push enough to say, actually, you have to do something because I will have to do something that right. you're not going to like. Right. As in moving out, for example. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to end my relationship, but if you're going to control, right. Or feel you can control the relationship, then I'm going to have to make a move for me. Right. So I can be in both relationships, and he right. doesn't want to hear that. So. 
Yeah, there's there, definitely there's a line a between pull, like right? how do you not hold a relationship hostage and also how do you communicate I'm a no to being indefinitely in this relationship if you're unwilling to make changes. Yeah. It it can kind of come down to trying to have a loose schedule almost of like here are the things that I feel need to change. Here's the maximum time period. But if you offer a maximum time period, it's going to take that long. And that's okay. Um, we did, like, we went to one counselor who refused to work with us. Okay. Um, because they said that we were, the relationship was too toxic at that point to be right. trying to go through therapy. And after the fact, she asked me how long, how long I could stay in this relationship the way it was. Um, and she really shook my worldview because I actually thought that we were doing fine. We weren't. I mean, we weren't doing fine, but I thought we could like, manage it, right? Yeah, and and she was actually telling me um, that I was like like in, it, that it was abusive. It got to the point where it was abusive, but right. it's like it was. And I'm not saying Scott's abusive. We have abusive tendencies toward each other because sure. we've been going because of what we've done to each other. We have, yeah. we're unlearning a lot of yeah uh, toxic behavior. Yeah. Um. But her telling me that this situation was happening and I left that meeting going what did I say to her to make her think such horrible things about Scott right such in, untrue things instead about of my like partner myself. actually looking at the situation right. objectively mm-hmm. and and at that point I gave myself a time limit and got I've you communicated it to him that things have to be radically different by this date right or I have to do something because I mm-hmm. can't and won't live like this forever yeah. and so I had to get somebody in my life who is an like accountability coach got to you. hold me to that and that awesome. it really sucks because at the end of the day if I have to leave him because he's not not willing to change then I mean you lose a relationship because because you because you have to be yourself and I don't it, it's the best and worst reason to leave yeah. a, you know, a relationship. Yeah, because I'm not, and I tell him that all the time. I'm like, I wouldn't, I'm not ever going to leave you for you because of you. I'm going to leave you because leave, leave you because of me because I have yeah. to take care of me. And yeah. those are different things now. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're making a transition from those old patterns of of taking care of people, and you're starting to look at what your needs actually are, advocating for your needs, and yeah. taking care of yourself. But it's painful because I don't know how to do it. And he's like a wave crashing against them. So like I'm erecting boundaries that are very new to me, right. um, and that I'm not used to any forcing any boundaries. You and know, in and a you're sense, instantly getting crashed on, right? In, in a sense, though, that's actually really great practice. I'm not saying it's an ideal situation, but I'm saying the fact that you have someone testing those boundaries is going to force you to be really good about them. Yeah. Something that I found when I first started making boundaries clear to partners is they wouldn't test them. And that might be because I'm socialized as a man and my partner at the time was socialized as a woman. It might just be that, that she definitely clued into like, Oh, I'm really going to try hard not to do this. Or it could just be that she's an awesome human being and was trying really hard for me mm-hmm. and for us and for her. And I appreciate that. When I first started putting those boundaries up, there wasn't tests. And then what I would find is, I would get complacent with it and I would feel like, oh, that boundary doesn't need to be there because it's not being tested. And then there would be trespasses over that boundary. And then I'd be like, well, what the hell? How did this happen? And it was also my responsibility to enforce that boundary as it was getting there, mm-hmm. not when it was way past. Yep. However, if you're not getting your boundaries tested, sometimes, sometimes you get lulled into that false sense of security. So I've had it go bad. At least in my head, the story I tell myself is because it wasn't tested early Mm-hmm. But it might just be that if it had been tested early, I would have had the same reaction where I let them move past that. Yeah. Hard to say. And it's, it, it, it's an incredibly painful experience to, yeah. to hold boundaries when yeah, you're hurting, when you're doing so hurts your partner. 
yeah it it sucks and you have to do it anyways yeah um it's beautifully said it sucks and you have to do it anyways yeah and because of it our relationship's changing right so it's worth it it just it's really hard yeah it's, it's much easier to break up oh my god breaking up is so much easier than working on a relationship yeah. What I find interesting is the the notion in monogamy that you only get one person makes it so much more challenging because you also have to ask yourself the question, like, am I good with this and only this forever? And am I willing to invest the next five years working on making this 10% better when there might be something 40% better right? 10 minutes away? Yeah. You know, if I just... Not that I'm saying jump on Tinder, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, maybe not 10 minutes, but, you know, like, even in 10 weeks. Yeah. Well, my my other party only lives five minutes away, so <laughs> it's, it's actually pretty convenient. Yeah, you can literally go there <laughs> and back. Yeah, and ten back. minutes. <laughs> That's funny. Not that we're comparing. No, it was, it was totally random. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So, do you invest energy into metamorphships? Do you ever find rewarding um, friendships with partners of your partners? I think so, but I don't know that it's actually the case. Interesting. Um, so you think you... Well, find... my metamors have been my triad partners, so technically they're my oh, partners, shoot. but not. That's super complicated. Have you ever had a metamor that wasn't a partner? No. That's complicated. Okay. Yeah. Cool. There's no problem with that. I just... I would love to. I like. I think I could sure. be a good metamor. Honestly, I think you would do so well at being a metamor, especially now that you have such a good foundation in like boundary setting mm-hmm. and and the idea that people aren't responsible for their partner's needs that just uncouples so much replacement baggage as mm-hmm. soon as and the same thing with the time flip as soon as you do the time flip of like oh i i'm grateful for the time that this person chooses to share with me it just it just yeah a lot of that a lot of that baggage around replacement just kind of floats away because mm-hmm. it just doesn't apply almost it's like the way that you conceive of and yeah. work through relationships is just different there's there's a woman that scott's been interested in uh post our break post our breakup with our triad and same kind of situation where it's like a guest star so she comes over occasionally and we, we have the group sex stuff and the most recent time that she came over I'm like you know I don't really actually want to necessarily participate or I want to participate at my own rate so why sure. don't you two go downstairs and do your thing and when I'm ready I come down or I'll, maybe I'll watch for a while maybe I'll sure. go in I will out. come in with a cocktail right? and creepily stare at you yeah right like but it was but it was, <laughs> it was teasing. something we had to, but it was really we had to negotiate it because sure. he was really didn't believe me and didn't trust that it was okay and that's probably like my only positive experience with a metamor at this point because she's mm-hmm. not technically a metamor but that situation felt like very metamory yeah and like i had the autonomy for the first time in in our group sex or our guest star type people sure. where i could choose to participate or not where mm-hmm. before it was always like i had to it was, i was part of the deal mm-hmm. um so i feel like i could be a good metamor but we're not quite there yet because both of my partners don't really identify as poly Ah, that's complicated. And when you say don't really identify as poly, I'm assuming you also mean don't identify as relationship anarchists, don't identify as, like, they identify as monogamous. Is yeah, I mean, when I met my second partner, we were never supposed to get together because our relationship goals are radically different. He wants babies, and um, wow. he's 15 years younger than me. He yeah, that's that's different. Babies. I didn't realize he wanted babies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's actually really adorable on a lot of levels. Yeah, and I think he would do so well with and babies. I, I, and you know, and a year in, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I could do that, right? But not be like the primary parent. Like, if I don't, I don't know. I mean, we could potentially work it out. I still have a uterus. We'd have to do insemination, but I still have a uterus. You totally. know. Um, but I'm 43, I think. Yes, almost 43. 
in right. 27. Right. So, you know, there's there's definitely some considerations. But, like, so there was that. and Well, you can always adopt, too. Yeah. Like, that's always an option. Yeah, I love how you're, true. like, as a secondary option. Yes. Yeah, as a secondary option. Well, I mean, it would be complicated anyways. There's, yeah. there's all kinds of complications around that particular issue. That's true, actually, including, like, investigations and seeing whether or not you're a quote-unquote suitable parent and how all of the work that you do that's so important, I, th- I believe, in our community would possibly work against you. Yeah. Yeah. There's and and and, the, and there's gender stuff. Like there's all kinds of right. stuff in that in that ability. And anyways, it just so that's complicated. And so we were supposed to date. And right. he doesn't. He didn't identify as poly. He identifies monogamous and right. wants a full time relationship. And so it was supposed to be very casual. Oh my goodness. So you're doing two relation two dyads with individuals who at least originally identified as monogamous. Yes. You are a brave soul. I'm an idiot. <laughs> So the funny part of this <laughs> is I've heard people comment about um, Franklin Vo, the co- one of the co-authors mm-hmm. of, of More Than Two, because he describes a similar situation because he was saying, you know, at the time, like, the options just weren't there. Like, you, there wasn't a thriving polyamorous community that you could go, you know, down to your local poly 101 meetup and just meet swarms of people. Like, mm-hmm. that isn't, he was like, that, that didn't exist. So he was dating two monogamous women. And all of the gendered stuff that comes with that. And it's not spoilers when anyone finds out that ended in two horrific fireballs. And and maybe I'm overemphasizing the story, and I apologize to Franklin. Have, have you read The Game Changer? I haven't read The Game Changer. Read it. Oh, is it? Because it's my life. <laughs> is it basically about what I'm talking about, the fireballs? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. And one partner just basically demanding the demise of the second um, relationship. Because oh. it threatened her, and, and that because they had a veto power... Oh, he that's, killed it. that's so, so I do my best to offer what a lot of companies call a poison pill, which is if a partner requests the demise of any other relationship, I will instantly dissolve that relationship yeah. that is requesting it because I just have no, I want to make it extremely clear that not only is veto not negotiated in my relationships, I will not be in a relationship with veto power. It just feels unethical. Uh, people outside of my individual relationship with a second person should not have I mean, they should be able to have a say of their own personal needs with me. I should take them into consideration. Being a kind individual, I will usually take everyone into consideration and then make a decision for myself. And if other people decide, consent positively, I have to withdraw from this relationship because I can't manage the decision that you've made. That is okay. That is a valid stance to take. I will, but I will not be in a relationship where there's veto power, where someone outside has control over that. It's yeah. like if I'm in a relationship with one other person, we're the only two people that have control of that relationship. Other people may put pressure on us socially to be like, "I think this is unhealthy," or "This is really affecting me negatively," and it can sort of be like, "Okay, how can we how can we change this? How can we make this work for everyone?" But veto power, my goodness, oof! I vetoed the first triad. Oh wow! So I will never do a veto again because it was. It was not okay. It was it, not fair. It also stops growth. It, it comes back to that whole ending relationships is easier than growing through yeah. them. And so I, I, I did it the first time. So when, yeah. we, when we entered our second uh, triad, we took out the veto yeah. because it's not right. And yeah. I, I, at that point, I, re- I respected and understood that any, there was any possible results for our relationship up to, including, up to and including the dissolve. The relationship, yeah, the relationship with Scott and I dissolving. Yeah. I mean, I recognize that that was a consequence of accepting this person into our relationship. Right. Um, and I won't ever work with vetoes again. Um, I just, I just won't. It's not fair. Yeah, I'm not a fan of vetoes personally. 
I've, I've never seen a situation where I felt it was good and healthy. There are situations where quote-unquote secondaries are brought in, and there's a lot of scripting, and there's a lot of mainstream programming as to what relationships quote-unquote should look like. Mm-hmm. And because the second quote-unquote secondary being brought into this relationship is well aware that there is this monogamous ideal that all three people are subscribing to, they sort of acknowledge that they're the visitor. They know that they're just just um hanging out for a bit and that's kind of like our guest stars right yeah like that's that's kind of we have phrase them but like alina out of seattle yeah um she also they they in her relationship structure they have veto in the first like couple weeks or couple months or something like that before you get into like actual love and stuff like that because as hmm. a like with with scott i believe that he'll pick up on bad people far faster than i will mm-hmm. right so if, that, if somebody comes into my life and he's like, that person is not going to suit you well. We don't actually have this, uh, this like dynamic. Like power or anything, yeah. um, But I kind of you can, can see how that, that would be possible, right? some people can implement like a temporary Yeah, like in the first period. couple of weeks or whatever, first few weeks. Interesting. I've never heard of that yeah, as a description I think Franklin talks about that too, actually. I uh, see. This is what I get books. for not reading The Game Changer. That's <laughs> a good book. It's in the library at MBK. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Another advantage for MBK members, they get free access to the entire library, which yeah. is awesome. Wow, I was going to ask about um, enriching metamorphships and um, non-dyadic relationships, meaning not being in a relationship with just one other person, but we covered all of that. Again, we just kind of organically slammed through all the topics. Mm-hmm. Wish I could say that that was, that was me being an on-the-ball host, but really I was just having a really great conversation. Well, that's the way it's supposed to go, right? Awesome. Did you have any like closing remarks before I wrap this up? I don't think so. Okay, great. Well, I guess that's our session for today, and I'll See you back here for One on Kink. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Intimate Interactions. I appreciate you. The intro music was Lullaby for Democracy, and the outro was Ladies Take Me With You, both by Dr. Turtle, published under Creative Commons. I want to offer a special thank you to each and every Patreon supporter who helps me with show costs, food, and bills every month. I see you helping make this show. And if you haven't gotten the chance yet, you can go check out patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Thanks for your time, and talk to you soon. Appendix. Remember those learning resources I promised you? Here they are. More Than Two, a book and audiobook by Franklin Vo and Eve Rickard, is one I have loved and have purchased for most of my partners. I recommend it as a book for absolutely anyone practicing non-monogamy. One of my partners lost the copy I lent to her when she lent it to one of her other partners, who kept it to lend to one of his other partners, and I have never gotten it back, and I'm okay with that. While the book meanders a lot, each chapter is themed, and while some blow through the book quickly, saying it's somewhat repetitive, others stop each chapter and work diligently where they're stuck, recommending the book highly to others. Useful for monogamy, this book shines for those who are considering or practicing open relationships or another form of non-monogamy. The Game Changer, a memoir of disruptive love, is a book and audiobook by Franklin Vaux. It's a compelling biography that gives examples of why rules won't save your relationship. They're useful for anyone, but especially helpful for people considering open relationships or practicing polyamory. Nonviolent Communication is a book you'll hear me mention often. It's Marshall Rosenberg's needs-based framework for relating to others. I consider it essential for practicing non-monogamy. I heard the audiobook version first and found it invaluable in establishing a healthy sense of boundaries, and it's helped me out in more than one of my relationships with partners reading through it and gaining a deeper understanding of themselves and our relationship together. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks. 
I'm open to being called in. Chances are in six months, I'm going to look back aghast and see something horribly problematic I'm not proud of. I'm certainly not perfect, and I'm trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. Along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories, specifically that of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations.